Welcome to the Moving in the Right Direction podcast, a podcast designed to successfully guide seniors and their families in moving from their longtime homes to the lifestyle they deserve. I am your host, Chris Essenberg, and I am joined, as always, by author and senior real estate specialist, Bruce Nemovitz. How are you doing, Bruce? Great, Chris. I'm really happy to be on here with you again. <laughs> That's right. It's another week and another great guest whom I cannot wait to get to. But before we get to the guest, um, you were telling me that you had recently done some surveys with your clients and you got some pretty interesting responses. Uh, I was thinking maybe a nice place to start would be sharing some of those results that you got on that survey with the audience. Would you uh, Would you care to share the survey results? Sure, Chris. Over the years that I've been in the business, I always want to stay connected to my clients and I want to know exactly what they're thinking. And sometimes when you ask a question, they'll maybe just, you know, say a cursory answer. But uh, when you ask a survey, have somebody fill out a survey, they can be a little more intimate and honest with their answers. So I sent out a survey to all of my clients. It's thousands of people that I have my database from over the years. And I received a huge response, much larger than I would normally get. So I know that people have a little time on their hands, you know, with the pandemic. And so the, the first question I asked had to do with the pandemic. And I wanted to know, you know, what is your decision going to be impacted by the pandemic as to when you're going to move? And I would have thought it had affected it. But the overwhelming answer was no, it has not impacted my decision to move whatsoever. And these are people ages about 78 to 85 years old. Wow, that's surprising to me. Were, were you expecting that kind of response? I was not. Um, so that kind of threw me back. And I asked some other questions also. And uh, I wanted to know also about exactly what's their number one fear? What, what's going through their mind right now? What is the biggest worry regarding you know, their home and moving and all of that? And again, overwhelmingly was my fear that my health may change in the future. I'm really worried about my health. Uh, I think you know, the reason for that is because again, you know, we've been isolated for about the last year and a half. And I think many folks that should have made the move didn't, you know, they postponed it. And of course, just like our cars, our bodies are always, you know, needing repair and getting a little bit older. So I think that's what was behind that. You know, that's a great point. I, I know when I first heard you tell me the results, it sounded strange as the folks were saying that the pandemic did not have a great impact on their decision to move. But then the number one factor in determining if they are going to move and when is is health. You wouldn't you wouldn't automatically think those two things are quite in alignment. But when you present it as the pandemic, perhaps acting as more of a call to action for some, which in turn doesn't hold them back from considering a move that makes a lot more sense. Well, I guess if you put it that way, it's it's pretty interesting. It is. I think, you know, you and I, Chris, we, we have discussed uh, crisis management. And I think that's what's really, really behind everything is, that, you know, geez, I don't want to wait until uh, there is an immediate crisis. Maybe I have a fall, which we see a lot, or God forbid, a stroke. And things have to be done, you know, 100 miles an hour. The family has to get in and help make decisions. 
And my, it kind of leads into my next question was, what is your decision-making process? Do you rely on a family member or do you make it on your own? And again, the number one answer was I always, always make my own decisions. And so uh, that tells me that we want to stay independent and we fear having to bring our family in to help make decisions. Yeah, that is very true. And I know that's something we've talked about a lot already. And it's something that our guest today is going to expand upon quite a bit, which is, uh, of course, family dynamics that come into play during the process of older family members moving and downsizing. So, you know, it's no surprise, I suppose, that people want to be independent and do things on their own. I mean, I know we all love our families, but we don't necessarily want to have to rely on them completely or you know, maybe perhaps it's just that we don't want to put that rather big responsibility on them. Maybe it's a little of both. But at the end of the day, I guess it's just as easy as saying, you know, people want to be independent from the time we're born. And, you know, we learn how to crawl and get the rattle or, you know, whatever onward. Right. <laughs> right. I don't know. Uh, but I think that when we apply it directly to our situation here, we can see how that need for independence comes into play. You know, Chris, uh, when I look at this too, and I, I kind of try to connect the dots because again, some of the answers on the surface seem kind of contrary uh, to the next you know question and answer, but they really do all connect. And they're saying kind of the same thing because in my last question, I asked when you're choosing a realtor, what are the most important things that you know, that you're looking for. Now you would think, especially with this hot market that we're in that commission, you know, think, oh, I don't, I want to try to cut the commission of the realtor and all that. That was a little sliver on the pie. And, and most importantly was the agent's services that the agent is going to provide all the downsizing services, the contractors, because I know all this needs to be done. I don't want to deal with it. So I do, I know I need the help. I know that I want to stay independent and to stay independent, I'll need the help of others. So it all kind of, you know, ties in. I think that point is so well made that, you know, ultimately we always have to rely on others in some capacity, you know, especially when it comes to something like downsizing and moving and everything that goes with that. But using this comprehensive approach that we've talked about many times like a team of professionals to help with the downsizing the move the old residents the new residents if we can find a good group of people to work with then we don't have to invoke the help of family and friends who are most likely let's just face it not experts in these respective fields and also then you don't have to have these pre-existing family dynamics factor in but, you know, speaking of family dynamics, that's going to bring us to today's guest. She is the founder of the Backbone Institute, which she founded over a decade ago. Uh, she spent over 30 years in leadership development, working with countless individuals. Uh, she is the author of four books, and we're going to get into talking about some of those today. She is Susan Marshall. Susan, welcome. Thank you so much for coming on. We're so glad to have you. Thank you, Chris. It's great to be here. And thanks to you in supporting Bruce for the, his wonderful work with this podcast series. I'll tell you, there are so many of us out in the world today who really need the work that you're doing. So I'm delighted to be part of it and excited to share today. 
Well, we are so excited to have you. Now, uh, Susan, I mentioned it at the top, but you've written four books, which for the record is is four more than I have written at the time of recording. Uh, so I, I have to start by acknowledging what an accomplishment that is. Uh, I know that you've uh, obviously have a lot of accomplishments, founding the Backbone Institute over 10 years ago. We'll talk a little bit more about that and all of your uh, leadership roles. So you also wrote four books. Uh, what motivated you to begin writing? Okay, that's an interesting journey in and of itself. Um, I have five siblings and grew up in grade school having kind of a dual um, passion for words and for people. So I was an observer and I was also really kind of, although I'm very extroverted in personality, introverted in terms of understanding how I thought, why I thought some things and how other people put things together. And so I would often go to the railroad tracks or the river and just write about stuff you know, what somebody had said or an exchange I had seen. And there was a period of time I took a creative writing course and I was doing kind of a daily journal, asking myself the the question, what color and texture am I today? Now, if that's not geeky, I don't know what is. And the two (laughs) that I remember were brown corduroy and blue gauze. I have no recollection why those two but they stuck in my brain. So anyway, I've been, I've, I've loved words. I've loved people. And I was blessed with the ability to put words and people together. And so thus the books. Now you've, you've written four books. I want to focus on your most recent book. Uh, it's called Mom's Gone Missing. When a parent's changing life upends yours. Uh, now you tell a really honest, really honest story of both of your parents' uh, journey through dementia and the family dynamics that accompanied that process. Uh, So could you maybe tell us a little bit or or help us understand the core of your story? Sure. Absolutely, Chris. Thank you. Um, Dad's journey through Alzheimer's lasted about a decade. And as he began to get forgetful, of course, we all just said, oh, he's getting older. He just doesn't remember stuff. It progressed very, very slowly, but got to a point where mom and dad had moved full-time to Arizona for years. They summered in Wisconsin and wintered in Arizona. And mom got scared that dad was getting really forgetful on the drive back and forth. So she said, you know what? We're going to sell the Wisconsin property. We're moving full-time to Arizona. They did that and were happy there for 10 years or so, maybe longer. But Dad started getting, toward the end of his disease, progressively aggressive, argumentative, and combative with her, which is very unlike his personality his entire life, from childhood all the way through this. So it became worrisome. She got to the point where she was interrupting or intercepting the mail because he would, he would fixate on a charitable contribution and want to be writing checks. She kept saying, no, you don't need to do that. So they had increasing numbers of arguments. She needed a break, frankly, and found an adult daycare center to take him to a couple of times a week. He loved it. Once he was there, she was terribly guilt-ridden for dropping him off so she could go shopping or play golf or whatever. But they settled into that pattern for, I don't know, probably a number of months. She then got sick, the flu or something, and decided to leave him there for about a week. 
So right before Thanksgiving, she brought him home for Thanksgiving and realized she simply couldn't do this anymore. She could not be his care caregiver. Um, and of course, riddled with guilt and that, right? We married for better, for worse. This is worse, but this is my job, blah, blah. So she put him into the facility. The stress of that combined with her own health challenges, we noticed that mom didn't start on this slow trajectory of decline. Her memory fell off a cliff. And so that's really the background of the story. What happened with dad, um, five siblings having different opinions about whether dad is seriously ill or not, whether he's just getting old, you know, the girls are overreacting to all this stuff. The guys were still going every Christmas to play golf. And so they didn't want that interrupted. We knew things were deteriorating and, and in, toward the end fairly quickly. So working through the family dynamics with five siblings, that has to be, it sounds really challenging. And so that's what I wanted to kind of uh, dive into a little bit is how that process worked, how it, how it looked, how it was like to go through, um, you know, with there's so many different opinions and, uh, you know, we're dealing with something that is so close to all of us and that we're all caring about and that we're all, frankly, very opinionated about. How was that? How was that to go through? Messy, in a word. <laughs> sure. It was messy. It was emotional. What I realized as I had many, many, many conversations was how important it is to not only recognize but honor the fact that each one of us has a very different relationship, even though all of the six of us grew up together in the same home, we had a very different relationship individually with each of our parents and with them as a couple, as our parents. And so once I began to understand that and appreciate that I didn't know their relationship, I didn't know the source of their grief, I didn't know how, how much in denial they were, how much they were accepting. And of course we can't know that unless we tell each other. So those were probably the greatest landmines through all of this was really understanding where that was coming from and working hard not to take some of their questions or comments or criticisms personally. So it sounds like communication was key. Uh, and learning to communicate and also learning to not take things personally, which is tough because these are, are very personal matters, I would imagine. Susan, um, you know, we had uh, Governor Schreiber on uh, another podcast and he discussed the, his book that he wrote, My Two Elaines, which was about his wife who succumbed to Alzheimer's. One of the things he told us when, you know, you're talking about family dynamics and all that was not only that they each have different emotions, but each grieves differently. It's sort of a, a grieving process, isn't it? Oh, there's no question about that. And depending on, on every individual, we're all so different, but grief is hard and, and it's, it's hurtful. I mean, it just, it, it physically hurts, right? If you're not prepared for that and you don't have the words back to the writing, um, if you don't have the words to describe what you're feeling or going through, it's just confusing. And so without having a way to deal with the confusion and without having the words to express what, you're, what you are experiencing, I think that's where the frustration and the anger gets expressed. Understandably, and, and certainly looking back, it's easier to understand than when you're in the middle of it. 
But that was the challenge for me personally, because I had the responsibility to make decisions that were, if not consensus oriented, really were focused on satisfying mom and dad's wishes as we had understood them prior to their decline. So I would imagine based on what you're saying that perhaps, and there's a lot of siblings there, six total, that maybe all six didn't necessarily see eye to eye on everything. That's a very delicate way to say it, Chris. Yes, but, but again, because every human being is wired differently, we live at different times, we have different experiences, that's not surprising. What was surprising at times was the, the fierceness of some of the conversations and the arguments and the demands really. Um, again, in retrospect, they all make sense, but when you're in the middle of it, it's just, it's really difficult to give each other that kind of space. And as you just mentioned, to, to not take it personally because it feels very, very personal in the moment. Absolutely. And, and it, is, it, it, it is an absolutely an issue that is very personal and is very sensitive to all those involved. Now, you mentioned that one of the decisions that you were faced with is deciding when it was the right time for your parents to move from their longtime home and, uh, you know, there was circumstances that made that decision obviously difficult because there were so many family members involved. Uh, so could you help us understand how you and your siblings came to any type of decision? You, you kind of alluded to it a little bit at first, uh, but I, I'm curious, how did you eventually get to so any sort of uh, resolution with this? Well, I have to credit my brother's. Um, for making the, the, the decision and truly issuing the demand that mom simply could not stay in her home any longer. As I mentioned, she had put dad into the Alzheimer's facility, which we were all grateful for, um, for different reasons, but she couldn't maintain the house herself. She was having trouble just with maintenance things, trimming palm trees, you know, silly things that had termites. So she just got exhausted. She was, she was tired of trying to deal with that again, but she was fiercely independent. So our challenge was threading the needle to get her to a place where she could still have that independence and be safe. So there in Arizona, there was a, a swanky, I wrote about swanky in the book, um, senior living community with independent apartments, assisted living with plans to build a memory care unit across the parking lot. She loved it. Her friends said, ooh, that's a fancy place. So it was really not hard to convince her to go there. Once we all realized, and mom herself understood, she simply was not up to taking care of this home anymore. The, from that point, my brothers went, they were the moving van, they organized the move. They were brutal in some of the decisions about what she was going to keep and what they were going to pitch in a dumpster. And I remember talking with her during that process, even though she was not understanding everything that was going on, she was upset thinking that they were really being kind of cold about some of the things that mattered to her. And yet, had they not done that, goodness knows how long that process would have taken. Susan, I have a question and I know that when I'm dealing with families where mom or dad um, is thinking of going to a senior community and they 
are fiercely independent, but the siblings don't always agree, as you said. And uh, often they we suggest, and they do find one point person because there's contracts to sign, there's decisions to be made. And when these papers need to be signed, it's hard to go from you know, the sister to the sister to the brother who lives in California and try to get everybody on the same page with contracts, especially when you're selling a home. And so I'm wondering if you suggest uh, to the listeners out there that they should they get a one person point contact or how are they all going to make these decisions? Absolutely. Yes. Period. Exclamation point. Bold faced underlined. We were fortunate in that mom and dad in 1997 had put together a very comprehensive family estate plan. As it turned out, it was way more complicated than it needed to be. And it created some challenge of interpretation and understanding with the siblings. But in that document, I was named power of attorney for healthcare for mom. Brother Paul and I were named co-successor trustees for the estate plan itself. So that gave us clear authority. Now, none of that had been executed yet, but my brother and I had, before any of this happened, received copies of the relevant documents that we needed to be aware of. And when I got them, I read through them. I'm like, oh, all this legalese, put them in a folder, put it away and promptly forgot about it. But the fact that they had done that planning work took all of the arguments about who's going to do what away. Susan, I don't mean to interrupt, but you had mentioned um, this is kind of important to those who really haven't gone through um, getting powers of attorney. And of course, that could go into a whole uh, another podcast as far as legal issues. But um, my question to you, there are two types of powers of attorney, which are completely different. And sometimes we get the thought that uh, one power of attorney covers everything. But I know there's a medical power of attorney and a durable power of attorney. So maybe you could talk about that a little bit. Yeah, and I'm not a legal expert, but the medical power of attorney really was responsible for making the the medical decisions. Surgery, no surgery, hospitalization, no hospitalization, that kind of stuff. The durable power of attorney, which we referred to as power of financial power of attorney, that was Brother Paul's responsibility. Um, as it turned out, because we moved mom back to, to Wisconsin, I had to cover both of those bases. Um, but then once the both, they both passed and the estate had to be distributed, that's where Paul and I were kind of co-quarterbacks, co I suppose, if you want to say it that way. A very important distinction and work that really all of your listeners, if you have not done it, if you have not begun it, please do. And oh, by the way, I'm talking to myself when I say this because I haven't yet. I've thought about it and I have two daughters. And so I kind of know how that's going to go, but it's never too early to start writing those things down. So should something happen, people don't have to guess who's on first and who's responsible for what. So that sounds like one of the lessons that you've learned from living this story. And I know you've already, you've shared some other ones as well, but what are some of the other lessons that you could share that might help our listeners that are starting to go through this process themselves, or that might be faced with it down the road? Absolutely. I think top of the list, which I did not do and did not understand, don't try to do this alone. Don't segregate yourself. Don't isolate yourself. I did both of those things. 
I didn't know there were resources like Bruce out there when I was on this journey five years ago. I've met many remarkable people since the book came out, which is why I'm on the mission with Compassion Chats. Please, please, please don't feel that you have to do this by yourself. It will, it will ruin your health. Um, it will create all kinds of stress and frustration and fear and doubt and all of that. You don't have to go there. I guess the second thing I would say is be careful about how you cope when you're in the midst of this. We all have these coping behaviors, whether it's, you know, I was a wino drinking wine, whether it's eating ice cream, whether it's binge watching Netflix, whether it's working out, you know, like a maniac. They're important to get us through these times, but when they become longer lasting or become habits, those types of coping behaviors can really ruin your health quickly if you don't recognize and reach out and have somebody help you through that. That's probably one of the most stark lessons that not only did I learn, but I've had people talk to me about. I can only imagine that, uh, you know, having some of those habits or coping vices, if you will, I mean, that can, that can absolutely turn problematic if we're not, you know, being aware of what we're doing, how we're coping. And of course, you know, no one can do this alone. No one can do this without, you know, you have to give yourself some time to relax here and there, but you know, if it's becoming something that is its own problem, you don't want to add another issue to life when things are already challenging. It's so true. And when you are in the midst of just getting things done, and again, the mindset of self-doubt, am I doing it right? Am I doing it fast enough? I'm doing it too fast. All of that stuff. Like I said, I'm, I was a wine on like, pour me another glass of wine. Didn't realize the extent of my own behavior until I had a probably 40 minute conversation with an individual. When I got up the next morning, I'm like, geez, did we talk? I went to my phone and it's like, yeah, we talked for 40 minutes. Didn't remember it. That's a problem. Uh, you know, Susan, as you talk about uh, caregivers, I think, um, as you said, one of the things to remember is that the caregiver often can end up in the hospital along with the person they're taking care of. And it's so critical for the caregiver to take good care of themselves so they can do the caregiving. And I think often they do isolate because again, some of our nature is to, you know, just be quiet when there's something wrong. We don't want to burden other people with our problems. But when it comes to caregiving, it's so critical, I believe, to have somebody in your life that um, you can talk to and you can share your anxieties and the issues you're dealing with. And, the, and thus, you know, this podcast and Bruce, the work that you and Adele are doing, it is so, so important because we do feel like we're the only one who's not doing this well. We feel like everybody else looks organized. Everybody else looks like they're kind of put together. The fact is none of us really are. Some days, you know, and we might look at like we are from time to time, but there's this constant undercurrent of, gosh, is this right? Is this enough? Is this, you know, whatever. And, and all of that takes a toll. It's kind of like, you know, Chinese water torture, drip, drip, drip. Just talking with people helps that. It's not something, having said that, we run out and we go, hey, guess what? I'm freaking out. I don't think I've got a grip on this. I'm not doing this for it. We don't do that. Well, and I think, Susan, two things that you highlighted would be, you know, for the caretaker, uh, self-care, that's important. You, you know, the old saying of uh, 
If you're going down in a plane, you know, you need to put your own oxygen mask on first. You, you, you're not going to be any good to anyone else if you're not taking care of yourself appropriately or you're letting coping mechanisms or things like that get out of hand. And also connection, connection with others. Because when we get into that caretaker role, you know, where we can be so focused on how am I going to, how, how am I helping this person? How can I make this better? And, uh, and we start to doubt ourselves because that's natural, that's human. And then, you know, we can set ourselves down a bad path of self-doubt and, uh, you know, kind of just being miserable. But the solution is at least, you know, what I've seen and what I've heard and what I've experienced in, in other avenues of life is connection with others that are also going through that same thing. Uh, now, you mentioned that you can't just run out in the, the street and say, hey, guys, I'm losing it. Or, you know, I, I, that that might not go well. That might I could I could see that that could be problematic. So having the appropriate channels to do this and to connect with others that are going through like, uh, you know, s- similar situations is so important. Now, you mentioned the compassion chats. Um, I, I'm wondering if you could just tell us a little bit about those, because those sound like a great avenue for people to connect and experience that connection and get out of that isolation that so many of us can find ourselves in when we're dealing with situations like this. Yeah, Chris, thanks for asking that question. We, we kicked off compassion chats in April. It's just a monthly 30 to 40 minute connection for caregivers. It's a Zoom meeting. Uh, we say, if you don't want to be on the recording, turn your camera off. Um, but, but we had three key purposes for the chats. First is to help caregivers understand you are not alone. There's a whole bunch of us out here doing this. Secondly, to help people understand that there are resources available to them. And thirdly, is to bring these resources to the caregiver communities as professionals, yes, but more importantly, as human beings, who have seen probably everything we're going through and then some who want to help. The purpose, our hope, our prayer for the work is that if we can begin to connect human beings in this way, caregivers will be more inclined to pick up the phone and call someone. I was not, I didn't know they were out there. I put my head down and I thought I'm gonna bowl through this. That's a very common orientation. We're hoping, and I know Bruce with your work here too, We're hoping to change that mindset gently over time and with tremendous compassion. You know, we always talk about crisis management. Um, I think that's what we all want to avoid because so often people wait, they procrastinate. We're all that way. You know, we don't like change. We don't like facing um, real big challenges that we don't know how to deal with. So we tend to pull back. And when people do procrastinate and get into crisis management, at least in my business, the house has to get sold. What are we going to do with the stuff? Finding a place for mom or dad to live. All this has to happen within a very short period of time. And guess who's left doing this is the family, the children. And neither the children nor the parent really want that to happen. Amen. And yet... It often happens. You see it all the time. That really was the situation that I was involved with. Although I knew intellectually that there were things that were going to have to happen. None of us expected mom to decline as quickly as she did. None of us expected, frankly, that dad would live as long as he did once he was placed in hospice care. 
And so it got very complicated and made worse by what we talked about earlier in this podcast, the emotion of all of it. Nobody knew, but everybody was upset. That's a bad combo. And then throw it into crisis management besides. So I, I think that's the reality for many. Um, we, we want to mitigate that to the extent we can, but I don't know that that's possible in many cases. So again, creating space for each other, having compassion for one another, I think is really foundational to helping people get, not only get through this, but hopefully not be scarred for long periods of the time once it's all done. I think that's a really important approach. And, you know, um, it is something that we all are going to have our own feelings about, and we're all going through our experiences individually and together. And it's, it's really something that is not easy for anybody. Now, Susan, I want to talk about your most recent book again. Again, it's called Mom's Gone Missing. Uh, now, it's very serious, of course, but, uh, and I, I wasn't expecting this, but it also, it also had me laughing a bit. I, I have to ask, w- would you mind sharing uh, the story with the audience of uh, the time you were boarding the plane with your mom and you, you guys had your father's remains with you? Would you mind sharing that story? Yeah, thank you. Uh, it was at the end of a long process. We were both tired. We were getting ready to board a plane. We had no idea what the day was going to unfold like we were heading to Wisconsin. And so, yes, humor is an important aspect of all of this. It can be dicey, and I'll come back to that in a sec, but we had dad's cremains, as they were called. And I had called the airport prior to just to make sure we could carry them on board. They said, yes, well, when we got to the screening process, I I mentioned to the the agent that this was dad's cremains or or something to that effect. And he kind of looked at me like, "Uh, okay, they had a special screening process. And so mom was getting confused and a little bit agitated. And I'm like, okay, this is going to take a little bit of time. So said kind of sato bochi, right? Deep voice. It's the only way we could get him back to Wisconsin. (laughs) (laughs) It's like, I don't even know what to do with that. Right. It's like, I I think that's kind of funny, but it was a funny moment. Mom just kind of like, whatever, let's go. But it, to me was kind of representative of the, the, the heightened emotions, the uncertainty everybody's feeling. There's no way to be graceful sometimes. So perhaps we can share a laugh. Now, what what I wanted to come back to with regard to humor is you have to be very, very sensitive to other people and where they are in this whole grieving process because humor can sometimes come across as cavalier and even cruel. And so keeping that in mind and just have, again, being aware of all of this stuff it's not easy. We learn sometimes by really, really bad mistakes. Um, but humor in that situation really kind of broke some tension. It can sometimes be a great diffuser uh, when things are very tense. But like you said, very important to be sensitive of everything going on um, because you don't want it to, you know, you don't want it to backfire. You want it, but if you're sensitive of, of what everyone else is going through, it can absolutely be something that's going to get you through some of these times that are, are so are so difficult. You know, Susan, um, listening to that story, I know when I'm meeting with families and the subject is so serious, you know, when mom and dad have to move and the children are asking me, you know, what's the game plan? And often uh, many of the family members are perplexed and some 
try to be humorous. Some are very serious. And I think the bottom line is that we all react differently when we approach issues that we're not familiar with. And I think especially within families and sibling rivalries come in from the past is what I've noticed. Uh, you know, the older brother got all the attention and mom never liked me and all that starts to come out. And so I think sometimes a little levity can sort of break the ice with the family. What do you think? I do. And again, I think it's really, oh, you're so right. And I was back, you know, I'll date myself now, but the Smothers Brothers, right? Mom always liked you best. Or dad always liked you best. Of course, all of that comes to the surface. And again, being sensitive to the fact that some of those things are present in the room when we're having these conversations. Humor, if it can be self-directed and kind of self-defacing or effacing, however that word is, um, poke fun at yourself, trying to deal with the emotion is a way to kind of let others off the hook. But you have to be confident, seems like a strange word, but you have to do it carefully. Sure. You know, one other thing that I've noticed uh, in my travels is that the there many times some of the family might be in a different part of the state or different part of the country. And then so the one child that is here with the parents seems to feel slighted in some ways because they're really had they have the responsibility the world on their shoulders helping mom and dad every single day now the family comes into town and there's some resentment from the person that's been here doing all the work and then getting advice from somebody who maybe hasn't talked to mom or dad in a few months big big challenge and I, what, what I did with that, and I think I wrote about it a bit in the book, was recognizing that the other siblings who haven't seen mom and dad, who haven't been directly involved, have had less privilege of time to understand what exactly has happened here, where they are on the spectrum of decline. And so their own, nobody likes to feel like they don't have a handle on this. And so some of the conversations, some of the questions, some of the remarks are, are just reflective of that, not having an awareness, but not wanting to appear to be out of the loop. Everyone wants to feel heard. You know, everyone wants to feel like they're involved because there's so much. And I know you brought it up already, Susan, but just it's such a it's a situation that elicits a lot of guilt you know, and, and it's going to elicit guilt in, in every family member differently. And, and we're all going to cope with it differently. And, you know, so sometimes just acknowledging, you know, that, hey, I know you care about this, too. I know you're trying your best too right now. You know, everyone's different. Everyone's, you know, we talked about assigning a point person. Well, that means that there's going to be other people that aren't the point people, but they need to also feel acknowledged. They need to also feel like, Hey, I love mom and dad too. I I'm, I want to do my best too. I don't, I mean, this is, it's an incredibly sensitive subject. And, and, and this is also each one of those siblings were in an effect, you know, getting ready to potentially lose their mother or their father, which is, I mean, one of the biggest you know, one is one of the biggest tragedies that I think can happen to all of us in our lives. It's that big of a deal. And I think that, you know, sometimes when we're just dealing with the day-to-day -day things and we're just looking at what's right in front of us, we can lose sight of how big of a, uh, how big of a deal this is to each and every person that's involved. 
Well said. Absolutely. Absolutely true. So Susan, I want to thank you again so much for spending uh, some time with us today. I really enjoyed your book and the honesty of it and, um, you know, and the humor, like I said, and I, I really, I wanted to say this also, but, you know, we're talking about how humor can be sensitive, such a great idea. If you have to be self-deprecating, bring it onto yourself, you know, because everyone, we talked about how everyone's going through so much. What you don't want to do is accidentally throw something over at the brother over there. We don't know where he's at. We don't want to just think, oh, he'll think it's hilarious. He might not. But you know what? We can always use, you know, make a joke at our own expense to bring some levity. Anyways, uh, but going back, I just wanted to say thank you so much for your time. Can you tell the audience how they can purchase a copy of your book? Um, It's called, again, Mom's Gone Missing, When a Parent's Changing Life Upends Yours. Uh, Can you tell us where they can buy that book as well? I know you've got three others. Where, Where can folks find those books? Absolutely. The, the quickest way to see them all and to, to find information on ordering is at my website, Susan A. Marshall, M-A-R-S-H-A-L-L.com. They're all available on Amazon.com as well. Um, but in addition to that, you had asked the question earlier, Chris, about the, uh, the compassion chats. All yeah. of the information on the compassion chats, including the lineup for this year, is also at susanamarshall.com. Passion chat button is right there. Click on it. There's the information. Please join us. I think you'll find not only, you know, serious conversation, but some humor and a whole community of caregivers and wonderful people like Bruce who are there truly to help us out. Well, thank you so much. And, you know, I'll, I'll say it once more, but in times like these, the number one thing to watch out for is isolation. So how do we combat isolation with connection? And I think these compassion chats are a wonderful solution to that. So I would highly recommend everybody check out the website. We'll put the website in the show notes so everyone can, if if you're driving or something, don't worry, we're going to have that website for you. In the show notes, you can check out more about uh, Susan's books. So folks can also find more out, I would imagine, about the Backbone Institute. I know we didn't get a, a chance to talk too much about it today, but they can find all of that information on your website. Is that is that right, Susan? It is absolutely correct. There is a separate button at the bottom of the homepage on the website that will take you directly to Backbone Institute website. It's a complete library of stuff there that is not necessarily related directly to Mom's Gone Missing, but certainly there's tons of information there to for people to read, to watch video, really to strengthen your own uh, competence, confidence, and ability to take intelligent, purposeful risk. I love it. Susan, I just want to thank you so much also for being on this podcast. I think what you are doing is so important because not only is it uh, giving uh, folks the information they're going to need if they do uh, encounter this situation, but I think it's so important to try to keep families intact after we didn't talk really much about that, but I think once the situation is over, everyone sighs a deep breath, but what I hear so often, and it's so sad from the people that I've been working with, boy, I'm glad that's over. I won't be talking to my sister ever again, or I won't be talking to my brother. That's it. You know? And, and so to keep the family unit together, I think is really, really important and to hear each other during the process so that the post process can be somewhat loving and keep that family together. 
Huge point, Bruce. And it's, it's kind of like we talked earlier about everybody's grieving differently. People say things in moments of grief, despair, what have you, that given time can sometimes be smoothed over. Not always, but I think, again, to not take things personally, to recognize that this is a very dire moment in a family's existence and it, it, give it some space. Really great point that you bring up there. And I think that's something that um, folks can absolutely find out more about if they go to your website. It's www.susanamarshall.com. We'll have it in the show notes. So Susan, thank you again so much for joining us today. Really appreciate your time. Uh, Bruce, before we close up, uh, where can folks go to find out more about what you're doing, uh, find out about your book? Chris, as I say all the time, you can go to www.brucesteam.com. And on that site, uh, you'll find Susan's podcast along with our other podcasts, but you'll also find several articles that I've written. I write for a local magazine called 50 Plus, and I've written on just about every topic you can think about. But as I listen to Susan, I realized that I probably haven't covered them all. So, but you can find my books there. You can find all the folks that have been in the podcast, as well as any questions that you might have. Great. Well, thanks again, Susan and Bruce. And thanks to all of you out there for listening. Of course, we would love if you could subscribe to the podcast. So go, if you can, uh, find the podcast uh, wherever you're listening to this and subscribe so you won't miss any great future episodes. You can find the podcast, of course, on Bruce's website. He just said it. I'll say it again. Uh, For posterity, it's www.brucesteam.com. You can find us on Apple Podcasts. You can find us on Spotify. You can find us uh, pretty much anywhere that you're getting your podcasts. Thanks again for listening and join us next week as we keep you moving in the right direction. Thanks so much. See you then.